Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series that we launched during this work-from-home period with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And what we're trying to do during these SALT Talks is to replicate the experience that we provide at our global conferences the SALT Conference, which we host annually in the United States, and we also host an annual international conference, most recently in Abu Dhabi in December of 2019. And we're looking forward to getting those conferences resumed here in the near future, as soon as it's safe for all of our participants. Uh, SALT Talks, what we're trying to do is really provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And our guest today uh, wrote a, a recently a great book about these big ideas and these big trends that are shaping our future, some good and some not so good. And our guest today is Fareed Zakaria, and we're very excited to welcome him to Salt Talks. Uh, Fareed is the host of Fareed Zakaria GPS, which is a weekly international and domestic affairs program for CNN Worldwide. He's also a columnist for the Washington Post, a contributing editor for The Atlantic, and a best-selling author. Uh, interviews on Fareed Zakaria GPS have included U.S. President Barack Obama, French President Emmanuel Macron, Chinese Premier Wen Jibao, uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin, Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu, and Turkish President uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Uh, Zakaria is the author of three highly regarded and New York Times bestselling books, In Defense of a Liberal Education, The Post-American World, and The Future of Freedom. And then his most recent book is 10 Lessons uh, in, for the Post-Pandemic World, which is what we're going to focus on today. Uh, prior to his tenure at CNN Worldwide, uh, Zakaria was the editor of Newsweek International, the managing editor of Foreign Affairs, a columnist for Time, an analyst for ABC News, and the host of Foreign Exchange with Fareed Zakaria, which was on PBS. In 2017, Zakaria was awarded the Arthur Ross Media Award by the American Academy of Diplomacy. He was named a top 10 global thinker of the last 10 years by Foreign Policy Magazine in 2019. And Esquire once called him the most influential foreign policy advisor of his generation. Uh, Zakaria serves on the boards of the Council on Foreign Relations, of which Anthony is also a member, and of New America. He earned a bachelor's degree from Yale University, a doctorate in political science from Harvard University, and rece has received numerous honorary degrees. Just a reminder, if you have any questions for Fareed during today's talk, you can enter them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen on Zoom. And hosting today's talk is Anthony Scaramucci, the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, a global alternative investment firm. Anthony is also the chairman of SALT, and he was also President Trump's communications director, I believe it was, for 11 days. And we're now inside of one Scaramucci until the general election. So that's a, a big milestone. You're gonna, you're gonna get fired, okay? I'm just telling you, keep it up. You're gonna get fired, okay? Everybody but Anthony, knows, I'll turn it over to you for the interview while, while we still work. Everybody on. knows, Darcy, be careful, Darcy, be careful. Now, Fareed, I'm telling you, we, 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 we read that exactly the way your mom wrote that, okay? How impressive <laughs> is that resume and that background? God bless you, and it's a, it's a real honor to be able to call you a friend, and I thought that your book was tremendous, and so, as I'm wont to do, I'm going to hold up the book. Uh, amazing book. Uh, obviously, will go on to be a bestseller. But I encourage people to read this. And, and Fareed said this while we were in the green room. He's written these books so that they can be read in one or two sittings. It'll take five or six hours to read, probably seven or so hours to listen to in Fareed's voice. 
Um, and I want to get into it with you, Fareed. But before we do that, I ask this question of everybody, and I've got to ask it of you. There's something about you that we couldn't learn from Wikipedia or from your television show. And I was wondering if you could share something with us about your life that caused your life to go on the arc that it's uh, gone on and, and this amazing trajectory that you've had. Uh, first of all, thank you so much. Uh, this, it's a huge pleasure. And I, I, I so appreciate your uh, the fulsome introduction and the holding of the book. Uh, you might have heard this once or twice before, uh, Anthony, but you are a good salesman. Um, <laughs> you are a very good salesman. Um, to answer your question, look, I think the part that people don't talk about enough, um, people like you and me who have happened to, you know, have had some success in our lives, luck plays a huge part in one's life. And I think we should always remember that. And we should remember that when thinking about people less fortunate than us. There are a lot of smart people out there. Uh, and they, I think that, you know, in men, some important areas, I got lucky. But probably when I look back, I'll say the thing that I notice that I, that I think when I go, look back helped me a lot was this. My parents, my father was a politician. My mother was a journalist. And, um, you know, in some ways, my dad was particularly a traditional dad. I, you know, I, I don't think he ever went to my school, for example, in the entire 12 years that I was in school. But they took us seriously as kids, and they uh, shared with us at the dinner table all the conversations that they would have anyway. Uh, their friends would come and sit with us at the dinner table, and we would talk about my dad's career, my mom's work, uh, what was going on in India, what was going on in the world. And I got very comfortable with adults, adult conversation and navigating, you know, adult uh, life. And I noticed that when I got to college, uh, I got a scholarship to Yale and I got there. And in some ways I was underprepared. And I went to a good school in India, but nothing like, you know, the Andovers and Exeters of the world. But I think I was better prepared in that one respect. I had a very good feel for how to handle, you know, adults and adult, the adult world. And nothing about it phased me. Nothing about it intimidated me because I had been talking to these people and just, and, and navigating that life for a long, long time. So um, I probably feel like that was that was a crucial advantage. Well, we agree. We agree on Providence or the universe uh, offering us luck. There's no question about that. Um, and I think that's apropos to what I'm going to ask you about, because we're in an interesting situation. I know you're a student of history. You write a little bit about this in the book, and I want you to address your philosophical thinkings about this threading history uh, the gap is widening, Fareed. We can look at the empirical data between the haves and the have-nots or the eventuality of a plutocratic world and then a world that's below the plutocrats, uh, which may be suffering. And, and those people, unfortunately, I'll speak for myself, uh, growing up in a blue-collar neighborhood with blue-collar parents, we were aspirational, but those very same people are now desperational. And so my question to you is... Uh, is this an effect of globalism? Is this a byproduct of globalism? If it's not a byproduct of globalism, what do we do to help these people? Because whatever you think of Mr. Trump or the rise of nationalism or populism, uh, that, is, that exists and systemically it's putting pressure to be reflected into our political leadership. And so I'm just wondering your thoughts on this and how do you think this unfolds over the next decade? Wow, that's a great question. It is in some ways the, the big question, you know, which is what, particularly in the Western world, 
how do we sustain this Western model that transformed the world over the last 200 years, given the very pressures you're talking about? So the way I would describe, first of all, to describe the problem correctly, I think that this is fundamentally a combination of globalization and the information revolution. It's not just globalization, because globalization has been going on for a while, as you know. I mean, we've basically begun the big burst of globalization in the 1880s, uh, then the 1920s, then the 1950s. But what has happened in the last 20, 25 years is that you've had globalization, and obviously that means some work goes to lower-cost countries. But generally speaking, that worked out because that was work people didn't want to do in rich countries. You know, People don't want to make T-shirts for a dollar a piece in the United States anymore. They don't want to make sneakers, sneakers for $25 a piece. They, that work migrates, and that what happens is what's left in the U.S. and in Germany is the higher-value work. Some of that has been thrown off by the fact that a lot of the world globalized simultaneously, particularly China and India. And so you got a lot, you know, the effect was faster and more accelerated. But the biggest issue has been the information revolution. Work is now digital. And this is the sense in which the pandemic, as you described correctly, has massively exacerbated this problem. Look, you and I are doing fine. Um, because we can work digital. It's a bit of an inconvenience. We're doing it th this way. We would normally have done it in you know, a, a conference hall, but th it's an inconvenience. But think about everybody who works in restaurants, retail, shopping malls, uh, theme parks, uh, hotels. That world has just been devastated. And so what's happening is the higher and higher value stuff is being made digitally and operates in a digital world and the lower and lower value stuff is the, is the physical world. And of course, that correlates with, do you have a college degree? Do you have technical training? So that's the problem. It's more technological than it is uh, globalization, and the pandemic has massively exacerbated it. The, the, the solution, I think, has to be twofold. We've got to spend a lot more money on these people, to put it very simply. I think we are not even beginning to understand the, the amount of money we need to spend on things like retraining on the earned income tax credit, you know, so that what the earned income tax credit does, it says if you work full time in the United States, you will not live in poverty. If whatever the market does, the government will top up your wages so that you do not have to be living in poverty. It's a, by the way, it's a great social program. Milton Friedman was in favor of it. So it's a, it's a free market program because it encourages work and these people spend that money. So it's actually good for the economy. The, the retraining part is harder, but you know, I'll tell you this because I've had senior government officials, people who you know very well in the Trump administration, have uh, came and talked to me about retraining because I've written a lot about it. And they said, you know, what is your sense of how we learn from the Germans? I said, you know what, you want to want the best way to learn from them is they spend 20 times as much per capita on apprenticeship programs as the United States does. So, yeah, there's some clever aspects to the programs. But the number one thing is they, they commit real resources to it. So I think a lot of the answer is that, Anthony. But finally, I would say this, and you know this better than I do, and this is what Trump gets. You got to give these people dignity. You got to give them a sense of respect. You know, when we talk about essential workers, when we talk about that's the right kind of language for us to use, not just about essential workers, but about farmers, about people in construction, about people who are, you know, working in, in mines. 
I mean, I think that the, even talking about this transition, it's not the right way to think about it. It's you first begin by honoring these people. And then you say, what we are trying to do is to make sure that your children can have the same kind of dignity and work and study. And we are therefore going to try and create jobs of the future for those people. But you, we honor, we respect, and we want to, you know, we want to help you have, we want to help make sure that your family has the same kind of life that you've been able to have, you know, something like that. But I think we shouldn't minimize the dignity part because a lot of what the right is better at doing than the left is the dignity, even though they don't spend any money on these people. Well, I, you know, I would say that it's the right coincident with President Trump. I think it was prior to President Trump, probably not as much. In fact, Correct. what I once wrote is that there was a vacuum of advocacy uh, for these people on both sides in the establishment for three decades, which gave Mr. Trump the opportunity to exploit that in 2016. The, you bring up in, in your book, which I found fascinating, you more or less say that the way the world is now organized it seems like we're having a seizure or an economic crisis, or now it being a healthcare crisis once every 10 or so years. And if you think about it, the 1998 crisis, which led to the Fed intervention, uh, you know, long-term capital management crisis, the 2008 crisis, the COVID-19 crisis, we could go back. And I'm just wondering why you think that is. Why do you feel like the way we've set up the mechanisms and architecture of globalization is causing these once or so, once a decade or so, seizures? Yeah, it's a great question because I puzzled about it myself. And I think that fundamentally, if you look at the system we've created, and obviously nobody sat down and created it, but that we have allowed to, uh, to build up. The system is very fast, very open, and very unstable. You know, it's, it's very fast. It moves at lightning speed, accelerated by information technology. It's very open. Every country can participate, and that is multiplied by the information revolution. But we've never wanted to put in safeguards, guardrails, seatbelts. We've never wanted to buy insurance because, you know, you don't want to slow it down. But the danger of a system like that is that it can, it can careen out of control. So, I mean, at some level, you can think of 9-11 as the kind of reckless expansion of Western liberalism and democracy everywhere in the world without much attention to the parts of the world that were really showing a backlash against it. And it was a minority of people in the Middle East, but we saw a pretty violent backlash to that idea. Uh, if you think about the global financial crisis, right? I mean, ever since we have massively deregulated the financial space, uh, it's, uh, it's basically it's since the 1990s or late 80s, you've seen a lot of these crises. I mean, the SNL crisis, the Latin American debt crisis, the tequila crisis, the Asian crisis, the Russian default, uh, you know, the global financial crisis. And, and if you look between 1938, uh, you know, roughly when FDR regulates to 1985, not a lot of crises, but a much slower system. So I'm not saying we know what the balance is, but, but clearly it is, a, it is out of control right now because we are seeing it's not just the pandemic. We're seeing forest fires in California that, I mean, you've, you've, we've burned 5 million uh, acres of land. That's the entire state of Massachusetts up in flames because between global warming and the way we have actually incentivized people to live at the edges of forests, um, it's, it's an invitation for one of these accidents to careen out of control. Um, factory farming, the way we do, it's an invitation for another pandemic. You know, So I want us to think more about resilience and security, maybe sacrifice a little bit of dynamism 
Because the thing you don't know, uh, Anthony, is one of these could be the last, you know, or, or at least could be so severe that it becomes it just imagine if we had been able to sacrifice some dynamism uh, and, and not had the global financial crisis. The world probably spent $20 trillion recovering from that. Imagine if we could have bought a little insurance um, and been a little careful about human development so we don't have these constant contacts between animals like bats and human beings. We're going to spend, I don't know, $30, $40 trillion on this, on this pandemic by the time we're done with it. Um, it would so much be worth, you know, a few billion dollars, a few tens of billions of dollars in prevention rather than the cure. Uh, you know, very, very well said, and and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll get there. There's your lesson ten. I mean, I loved all of the lessons, frankly, but the lesson ten I found fascinating because you really do understand the post World War II architecture. You mentioned a little known fact by most Americans that FDR really started the process in '43 into '44 uh, with the notion of the post World War II architecture starting. Even though the outcome of that war was uncertain, he knew that, uh, and he was a Wilsonian in many ways because he was the undersecretary of the Navy for uh, Woodrow Wilson. And when I was reading that and reflecting upon it, I was actually listening to it on audio tape, and then I went back and looked at it in the book. When I was reflecting upon it, it's 75 years out. It's been by and large successful. We've had peace and prosperity as a result of the post-World War II alliances and the architecture but I'm wondering now, because a lifetime has gone by, 75 to 80 years, is it time for a reset? And if it is time for a reset, Fareed, what would that reset in your mind look like? What would it need to look like to continue peace and prosperity and the lifting of the rest of the world into uh, middle-class living standards? Well, you're asking all the big questions. I mean, I think that's, the, that's in a way, the central international question. Uh, and you're right. There's no question. I mean, FDR was a total visionary. Um, and, and you really have to think, imagine in that situation, isolationist America, 43, as you say, one and a half years after Pearl Harbor. And he's already thinking that we are going to create a new world order. We're going to create a new system. We're going to create an architecture that gives the great powers an incentive to be in there. He was at Versailles uh, he was visiting uh, as under Assistant Secretary of the Navy. And he said, Wilson's ideals, roughly speaking, what he said was Wilson's ideals were the right ones, but the guy doesn't understand. It's not going to work if you just say these are the laws and these are the rules. You've got to give the major countries an incentive to be there. That's why we ended up with the, the Security Council. That's why we ended up with the Great Powers veto, uh, which invests the strongest countries in the world in the system. So that is in some ways that the core of my answer to your question. You, we will not be able to sustain this system if the most powerful countries in the world today, not in 1945, are not invested in. Yeah. And if you think about the architecture now, I mean, the, the five countries that uh, dominate are the five countries that won the war in World War II. It's actually four countries. We pretend that France won the war when it really didn't. Well, it's interesting, um, not, not, to take, not to interrupt, but I will, it's sort of like the Dow or the S&P for read. You know, we recirculate. I can assure you that the Dow 30 in 1945 are not the same as the Dow 30 today or even 10 years ago for that matter. I think it's a very interesting point. No, exactly. Now, now another analogy, though, which is a little less, less uh, hopeful, is the American Constitution. 
I happen to be, as an immigrant, a huge fan of the American Constitution. I think it got more things right than any constitution has ever gotten right. But it is an 18th century document. Uh, parts of it are badly worded. I mean, the Second Amendment, frankly, is just a grammatical mess. Nobody even knows what it means when you talk about a well-regulated militia. You know, So there are parts of it that clearly need updating, but it's very hard to do. So the real challenge here is going to be you know, to do a kind of software update, a soft update. You're not going to be able to say, we're going to bring the system down and we're going to start from ground zero. But we have to find a way to uh, incentivize the most powerful countries in the world that could otherwise be the spoilers to, to in some way be part of it. It doesn't mean that they're all going to be beautiful liberal democracies and the, you know, the world is going to be at peace. No, China is going to be a co competitor. We're going to have, play, have to play hardball with it. We're going to have to find ways to outcompete it. We're going to have to find ways to push back against it on many issues. But we both have a very strong overriding interest that there be an open system, a rule-based system in which mo you know, mostly things are resolved by, by uh, dialogue and not by force, uh, in which everyone can trade with everyone. So if we can come up with a set of rules and try to incentivize people, then what does that mean? It means we, we blew it in the Obama administration on something called the Asian uh, Development Bank. The Chinese came to uh, us and said, we want more influence in the Asian Development Bank, which is basically a, a, a public financing mechanism in Asia, and we'll put in a lot more capital. Obama administration said, no. The Brits actually advised us to accede to the Chinese demand. And we're like, no, we like the fact that we dominate the Asian Development Bank. So the Chinese say, okay, we're going to go off and take our marbles and we'll start our own thing called the Asian Infrastructure Development Bank, which is, I think, got it five times as much paid up capital as the, as the ADB. So yeah. they went out and freelanced, created their own alternate system. It's working better than, than the, and the Asian Development Bank is dying. Yeah. We've got to think that, that example through a hundredfold. A hundred percent. They did the same thing with the Export-Import Bank for China versus our XM Bank in the United exactly. States. Exactly. Reed, you wrote an amazing book. I have to turn it over to John Darcy because we have huge audience participation and we've got tons of questions coming in. And so, you know, I'm I'm not that promotional, right? Fareed, so look at the book. Look, I'm like using the book as a windshield wiper. See that? But it's an amazing book. I encourage everybody to read it uh, and uh, wish you great success with the book. And I'm looking forward to your future writing on this topic because I think you're right on point and where the world needs to go. Uh, so congratulations, Fareed. I'm going to turn it over to John and all that blonde hair, Fareed. Look at all that American <laughs> blonde hair. All right. Thank you. Well, uh, Thank you, Anthony. It's my pleasure to take the baton. So Fareed, I want to elaborate more on what you talked about in terms of humans encroaching on animal habitats. There was a great book that we've talked about before on previous Salt Talks called Spillover, written in 2012, that more or less predicted elements of this pandemic. And you write as one of your lessons in the book about how the pandemic and, and likely future pandemics is sort of nature's revenge for uh, overpopulation, human environmental encroachments. And you also warn about the implications of a meat-based diet. Could you elaborate on all the different implications of you know, more people around the world moving into consuming meat and, and the implications that has for our planet? Sure. So first thing to remember is the more meat we're eating, um, the more unhealthy we get. Uh, small amounts of meat are perfectly fine, but larger and larger amounts of meat correlate with all kinds of terrible dietary issues. One of the reasons, by the way, that we don't talk about why America has been hit so badly by COVID 
is we're all we're all obese. The United States has a massive obesity problem, and as a result, you know, and that is essentially a disease multiplier. But the problem with a meat-based diet is fundamentally it is terrible for the the environment in terms of global warming. The amount of farmland you need to produce the the the, the amount of calories uh, we consume through meat is massive. I can't remember the exact numbers, but it's something like. 40 or 50% of the farmland for 15% of the calories. You know, so secondly, there's a huge amount of methane that, that is released into the air. And thirdly, factory farms, which is, by the way, how 99% of meat is produced. So if you think you're having organic meat and you're solving the problem, you're not. You're 1%. 99% of meat is produced through factory farms. You're herding animals together in, in incredibly unsanitary conditions. And you, you've chosen animals that are genetically selected to be similar, right? Because that's the whole point of factories. You're producing exactly the same product. And that means that these, these animals have no defenses against viruses. So the virus just keeps hopping from animal to animal, getting more and more powerful. You've, fe- you've, you've fed the, uh, you've, you've injected the animals with antibiotics. So the, an- I, the viruses are now becoming antibiotic resistant. And this is a Petri dish. For a, for a pandemic. And my great fear is that, that COVID-19 is the dress rehearsal for what is going to be a more virulent version uh, of, a, of a respiratory virus born out of this factory farming. So you've got global warming issues, you've got environmental issues, and you've got pandemic issues. And most importantly, your personal health will be substantially uh, alleviated by reductions of, of, of uh, animal protein. Now, to be clear, I'm not a vegan. I'm not, I'm just careful. I, you know, I think it's very important to, my sort of approach in life is Aristotelian, everything in moderation. But, you know, I'm very careful about, about how much uh, meat I eat because it's bad for me. It's bad for the country. It's bad for the planet. So we've seen certain countries, and, and your point about this current pandemic being a wake-up call for a potentially more deadly future pandemic is well taken. And we've seen certain countries and certain cities be much more resilient and effective in fighting the spread and the morbidity of COVID-19. What cities and countries have stood out, and what can we learn from their success in preventing the spread and in treating the virus? Sure. It's a, it's a really good question because we really have a wide variation. It's exactly what a social scientist would want in a, almost a kind of natural experiment. So probably the gold medal goes to Taiwan. Taiwan is about 24 million people. Um, it is right next to China. It gets huge amounts of traffic from China, tourists, business travel, millions and millions of people. Um, and despite all that, uh, Taiwan has had, I believe, seven COVID deaths. So to give you a sense, New York State, which has 19 million people, 5 million fewer than Taiwan, has had 35,000 COVID deaths, roughly 34,000, I think. Um, but you, you know, Taiwan's death rate is one two thousandth that of the United States. So you ask, what have they done right? First thing they did was they acted early. They decided, having gone through SARS and MERS, they realized, you know what, Let's better to take no chances. And they got, they got smart early on. Secondly, they were aggressive. They put in place some travel bans. They put in place some immediately, if you came off the plane, you were coming from China, they took your temperature, they, they you made you do certain kinds of checks, they, they kept your information, and then they started banning a certain amount of the travel. Most importantly, they immediately ramped up 
mass testing and tracing and isolation. We don't talk about that because it's the inconvenient part. You have to quarantine the people who are potentially infected. The whole thesis behind the Taiwan strategy is a lockdown is a bad idea because it shuts down the economy. A lockdown is a sign you've already failed. So what you're trying to do is say, this doesn't just spread randomly through, you know, through the public. It spreads in clusters. So the minute you find one person who has it, you are trying to capture that cluster of potential infectees, isolate them, separate them from the population. And they did this in Taiwan. In total, they separated 250,000 people for 14 days at a time, obviously not all at the same time. But that's 1% of the population of Taiwan. So they were able to keep 99% of the country, the population fully operational by just selectively and strategically and immediately pulling out those people who might be infected. So it's early, aggressive, and intelligent. We were late, passive, and stupid. So Mark Meadows, the White House Chief of Staff, told your colleague Jake Tapper this weekend that we basically just need to give up on trying to contain the virus. It's not going to happen in America. People value their freedom of movement and and the right to wear a mask or not wear a mask too much. We need to focus on therapeutics and getting a vaccine. Is, is our inability to fight the virus a lack of political will to put these systems in place to fight it? Or is there a lack of testing capability that's you know more of a product of lack of scientific development and, and uh, manufacturing development. Can we do this if we decide that we have the political will to contain it, the spread, not just the death rate? We absolutely could do it. We could still do it. Um, first of all, to explain why we don't have a mass testing and tracing system in place, it is purely a political decision. The testing piece is trivial. Do you know why we don't have real good testing in America? Because the federal government has not made a distinction between tests that are returned within 24 hours, within 48 hours, within three days. A test that with the results you get three days later is essentially worthless. You're trying to figure out when people are symptom, you know, when people are infectious and separate them. So you're infectious for about three or four days maximum during the course of this disease. Right. If you get the test back three days later, <laughs> you've already passed the point where you're infectious. So at that point, there's no, there's really no, no point in isolating somebody. So the whole point of isolating is once you find out that somebody is positive, you put them in a place where they can't infect anyone else. So if the federal government will not make a distinction in reimbursing, why would a private company, you guys, I mean, many, most of your viewers are business people. Why would a private company be stupid enough to incur heavier costs to turn around the test in 24 hours? as an act of public virtue. They're not going to do that. The feds have a very simple solution, which is you reimburse double for a test that you get back in 24 hours, normal rates for 48 hours, and not, you know maybe 10% for anything that comes back afterwards. You would see the testing regime change in a minute. I mean, it, these companies could do it easily, but you know, while they have 95% margins, why are they going to do it now? Um, the, the tracing piece, yeah, there's a little bit of a challenge there. But other, Europe, other Western countries have been able to do it. Germany has a very good tracing system in place. Some of the Northern European countries have a very good system in place. No, we're just being defeatist. Uh, and the Trump administration has decided that their election strategy is to say 
look, this was this was not something one could handle. So any change to the system would imply that they made a mistake. And Trump hates to admit he's made a mistake. The real truth is what we should be doing is saying we failed. Happens in life, whatever. It's that's history. We can learn from the failure and we can still set it right. So I want to shift gears a little bit to a couple other themes that you've written about a lot in the past and you talk about in this book as well, which is you know, the growing digitization of the world and our migration that's been accelerated by COVID to life on the internet, remote work, the rise of robots and robotics, artificial intelligence. Long-term, what do you think the implications of the pandemic are to the speed of the development of those technologies? And what do you think those technologies look like in our society in, say, 10 to 15 years from now? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. and It's a big question. The way I think about it is what, what the pandemic did was it massively accelerated an ongoing trend, which is we were clearly transitioning to a greater and greater digital uh, uh, life, but it's massively accelerated it. Look at telehealth. It was very hard to get people to go to their doctors. Um, you know, People like to go and physically meet with the doctor. The doctor liked to meet with you because the doctor got paid more when they met with you. Suddenly, COVID has eliminated all those human obstacles. And you're going to have 1 billion televisits, uh, health visits by the end of 2020. Most people had predicted that would take about 10 years to happen. So you're, you're massively accelerating it. Now, in doing that, my fear, there are a lot of hopeful things about that because it massively increases productivity. It massively increases the scale at which you can operate. Think about education. One of the things that will come out of this is we're doing it badly right now, but online education will be totally transformed because by having this huge, massive stress test to the system, we're going to figure out what pieces work, what pieces don't work so well. I've got a son in college who already, you know, he they're all piecing it together. They're realizing, you know, if it's a lecture, Zoom works fine. In fact, you don't even need the Zoom. You can listen to the lecture as a podcast right. while you're you know, doing something else, you're, you're biking or you're running or you're walking. But for a discussion section, the Zoom is not that great because you don't, you know, so you're finding some areas where the technology is actually great. You're finding in some areas where it needs a lot of work. It needs, you need to supplement it. I find that with dealing with my teams for, for the show, building social capital on Zoom is very hard. Spending it is easy. You know, if you already have good relations with people, you already have a good working environment you can execute. But what about the new person? What about the new process? What about the new, you know, what about the little stuff that you haven't thought about? So all that is the challenge. The dark side, and I'll end with this, is it's happening really fast. So if you think about globalization, one of the reasons we're in the situation we are with the anti-globalization mood is that China and perhaps to a lesser extent India were just such large shocks to the system. You know, before that, when we had expanded globalization, what did it mean? Japan came online, 50 million people. South Korea came online, 30 million people. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Singapore, Taiwan, 10, 15 million people in total. And then you get China, 1 billion people. Then you get India, at the time, 800 million people. And so the scale was just so much larger than anything we had dealt with before that it did cause an, you know, an impact both economically and politically. I worry that the, the speed with which we are now going to make this digital transition is going to just be 
devastating. So let's say it transforms the restaurant industry, which I think it will. And you'll have a much greater degree of online, you know, web-based uh, uh, delivery systems and a smaller number of high-end restaurants where you go for the real experience of a kind of really cool bars where you're going for the atmosphere. So there will be some kind of sort. Um, normally, maybe it would have taken 20 years for this to happen. If it happens in the next two years, what happens to all those people who were waiters and, and busboys and, you know, the bellhops at hotels? And so, you know, change is good, but when change accelerates that fast and almost unnaturally, are we ready for it? And that's one of the reasons I come back to the importance of government as a stabilizing force to try to help us get through what is in a crazy, crazily accelerated transition to digital. So what are those solutions? It's a great segue to a couple of audience questions. There was one that was focused on India. You know, India is obviously undergoing massive economic development and digital development. You're seeing the growth of the technology industry is, is very fast right now in a place like India. It's the same type of phenomenon we've seen across the world in China and the United States. What type of government policies do we need? Obviously, you talked about technology providing a more level playing field in terms of access to telemedicine and healthcare better access to at least the bare minimum quality of education in the form of lectures and things like that. What type of government policy specifically would you like to see in the United States or elsewhere to make sure that the, you know, the people on the bottom rungs of the ladder at least have the means to live uh, not an impoverished life? So, you know, it's a great question. Look, it's, a, it's, it's quite different, I would say, honestly. A place like India, you're still facing the fundamental challenge that about 600 million people in India still live on less than $2 a day. Uh, and one of the reasons is that the Indian economy remains very closed, very regulated, very socialistic. And so in India, the answer is open up, open up, open up. You need growth. You cannot get those people out of poverty without growth. China is the perfect example of that. You have to focus first and foremost on growth. And you have to focus on employment-friendly industries, you know, the places that employ large numbers of people. And so that for India, that means you've got to do everything. You've got to do factories. You've got to do retail. You've got to do large-scale agro. You've got to find ways to open up the labor markets, bring in foreign investment. It's all the traditional mechanisms that have allowed countries to grow uh, by embracing markets, by embracing development, by embracing trade. For India, you, you will get to, you know, you've got a long way to go before you start having the problems of you know, too much growth, too much development. So right. in India, I would say, you know, really think of just opening up. And all the technology is good because it leapfrogs all kinds of, of uh, ruinous and dysfunctional technology. So there, there's a 4G system in, in India that's been put in place. Amazing for increasing productivity for farmers, for laborers, for anybody. The U.S. and the Western world faces a different problem, which is the traditional working class of these countries, the non-educated working class, by which I mean people without college degrees or even much technical training. Uh, and it's important to make that distinction. Workers with technical training, for example, electricians, uh, you know, plumbers are doing fine. Uh, and they can adapt very well to the new economy. They can adapt to working on wind turbines or solar panels or whatever it is. But it is the more traditional working class, the, uh, the, the less skilled, what would, would have been called semi-skilled jobs, uh, that is much harder hit. Um, 
for these people, I think you just, as I was saying uh, to Anthony, you got to spend more money. I mean, we've been very, Obama gave a great speech once or, uh, you know, some remarks where he talked about the signing of, I think it was the South Korean free trade deal. And he said, you know, we all know that the trade is good and more trade is good. It opens up, it grows the pie. But we always say, we understand that it dislocates some people and we should spend money on them. And then we never spend any money on them. And then that resentment grows. It was prophetic in a way, because that has been our principal problem. We know that, we know that there is going to be a, a, a period of dislocation and there are going to be parts of the country that are dislocated. In other words, this is not spread evenly throughout the country that you get all the benefits you know, evenly and all the costs equal. The benefits are spread roughly evenly. The costs are highly concentrated in particular towns in Pennsylvania, in Wisconsin, in Michigan, in Ohio. And you have to have a strategy that addresses that. And frankly, that helps these people. Some of it is just cash. Some of it is retraining. Some of it is figuring out new apprenticeship programs. Uh, but we need something on the scale of the GI Bill. You know, the thing, great thing about the GI Bill was it was a very American and ingenious solution, which was the federal government will pay, but it will not administer anything. The private sector, as it were, colleges, both state, religiously oriented, private, will provide the service. So the deal was if you'd been a GI and you presented your, your, you know, your proof of it, you could go to any college for any degree of any kind and the federal government would pay. I think that the federal government does very well writing checks. They know how to do that very well. Administering stuff they're less good at. So try and find a similar, you know, where maybe the private sector identifies the needs. Um, here's what we, we need welders. We need whatever. The federal government provides the resources and the community colleges maybe or, the, or state colleges uh, do the training. You know, some kind of triangle like that. Um, right. and, and what stops you, just to be clear, is it's not that we couldn't come up with ingenious programs. What stops us is the resources. You'd, you'd have to spend a lot of money. I'm talking about tens of billions of dollars on this. So you, you talk about, we're going to leave with one last question. You talk a lot about these trends. And, and in a lot of ways, the book is very depressing or concerning because you see so many things happening that, that are moving us in the wrong direction as a world. Um, but let's let's imagine five, 10 years in the future. Let's say we have a, a change in administration in the United States. Uh, Vice President Biden wins the election, as the polls seem to indicate that he will. Do you think this rise in nationalism and this attack on globalism is a permanent phenomenon that's going to continue, or if not permanent, at least a, a uh, cyclical phenomenon that's going to continue for 10 to 20 years, and it's really going to erode our ability to fight things like climate change and global poverty? Or do you think that we can do a course correction right now at this moment in time and move back into a direction that, that is more stable in terms of global peace, global prosperity? Look, I hope we can. I'll tell you why. Um, you talk to no any uh, venture capitalist in Silicon Valley and you ask them, what do you want? What's the, what's the first you know, kind of person you The first kind of person you want is like uh, you know, Elon Musk, who succeeded at two or three different things. But let's say you can't get Elon Musk. Um, you want somebody who failed, but who learned from that failure. I think that the, the key here is, do we have the capacity to learn? You know, we're going through some very tough stuff, but you only change when you fail. As a company, as an individual, as a country, it's, it's easy to do nothing when times are good. You know, 
But it's when times are hard, when you face dislocation already, when you're looking at failure, you now have the chance and the opportunity to change. So I think we should view this, uh, you know, and not sugarcoat it and say, look, we fail in our response to this pandemic. And by the way, a lot of countries fail. What can we learn? How do we do it better? What, you know, we have the opportunity to, to embrace a different future because stuff is already so dislocated. People are open to the idea that we need to figure this out better. Um, I, I look at the European Union. They started off their response to the pandemic was very much like ours, you know, closed, narrow, selfish, turned inward. The Italians started blaming the Germans. The Germans started blaming the Italians. And then there was a kind of come to Jesus moment where they thought to themselves, wait a minute, what are we doing here? We're, we're screwing up the entire European experiment. And instead, what they did was they reversed course. And the Germans, for the first time, uh, along with the French, essentially agreed to the, those, you know, what, what was always called Eurobonds, basically to guarantee the debt of the poorer countries so that they could all get out of this. And in doing that, they're also creating stronger bonds among the Europeans than they had before. So I predict that the European Union will come out of this crisis actually stronger than it was going into the crisis. So in a way, why can't the world do the same? Because the truth is we've all been drawn inward, but we are all coming to realize you can only solve this together. It's a global pandemic by definition. Uh, you know, we're not safe unless everybody is safe. We're not going to be safe, by the way, through, with climate change if we don't do it together. We're not going to be safe with space wars if we don't do it together. There's so many of these challenges that really require not global government, which that's a kind of bugaboo that people do to scare, but, but global governance, you know, agreements made by sovereign governments to cooperate. And, and by the way, that's how human beings have survived. I mean, we've survived because of a strange mix of competition and cooperation, but the evolutionary bio biologists will tell you the dominant trait was that we know how to cooperate. We know how to therefore operate at scale, and we know how to get to win-wins. And what we need to do now for the world is get to a win-win. All right. Well, that's a perfect place to leave it, an optimistic message. Thank you, Fareed, so much for joining us. It's an absolute pleasure. We would encourage everyone to go out and read your book. It's, it's sitting right behind Fareed right now. Um, thanks again, everybody, for joining us. And thanks again, Fareed, for taking the time to, to sit down with us on Salt Talks. A real pleasure. Take care, guys.